0: Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, June 1st. We begin with an update on Calgary City Council. We'll check in with 770 CHQR reporter Aurelio Perry with this week's agenda, including the next step on the controversial Green Line LRT.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic has brought to light the horrific state of long-term care homes in our nation. We'll hear the personal story of an online journalist who says the conditions have been unacceptable for quite some time.
0: Then we head south of the border for an update on the many racially-fueled protests that have taken place across the country in the past few days. We'll get the latest from Global
1: News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Today kicks off Empathy Week in our city. We'll hear from the organizer behind the online event on how the idea came to life and the workshops and resources available during the week.
0: And finally, we hear the inspiring story of an Alberta nursing student who has gone above and beyond during the pandemic. We'll meet our newest nominee for Community Champion.
1: Okay, so what do we say as far as, you know, the past few months have been detrimental uh, financially for, for many Calgarians, and in the past week or so, the uh, property tax bills came out. This is the, the timing, uh, you know, really couldn't be worse to, to ask for a project like this. It's basically already underway.
2: Yeah, this project has been underway for years already. Mm -hmm. Uh, The city's portion of this thing, uh, years ago, there was $52 million in tax room vacated by the province. And there was a close eight to seven voted council to use that tax room as the city's portion for the project. So, like, you're not looking at uh, grabbing any extra money. Uh, to build this thing because you've got a commitment from the federal government that's been reaffirmed by two governments and then you've got the provincial government um took the NDP a long time to come around to funding this thing and then uh recommitted by the uh Kenny government however they pulled they pulled one on the city where they were ex- city was expecting 550 million over a few years and it said they're only going to get 75 but the province says it's still committed to the project so you scrap this you're scrapping uh, three billion dollars in federal and provincial monies the city's take is that 52 million in vacated tax room which uh, they've been collecting now for several years as they go forward here
0: so it looks like it will go forward and at what point though aurelio does a final decision have to be made on this and and the, the you know we just start moving forward in some way shape or form
2: Well, we thought we had a final decision uh, a year ago or a couple of years ago. Uh, So they, you know, they did do the assessments to, you know, when they first came out with the price tag of this thing, they had what's called a class five estimate. And so that didn't take into account the risks and risks involved in going underneath the downtown. And so they've made changes so that they're not tunneling through underneath the river and then tunnel all the way up to 16th Avenue North. So they've changed that aspect uh, to save money in that regard. So we'll have a voted committee, we'll have, and then there'll be a voted council. You're seeing more and more pressure to uh, maybe stop it into the downtown, get into the downtown, get the people from the southeast into the downtown, and then uh, have an advanced uh, BRT system going north. That is gaining uh, some steam uh, you know you, the reason that it got approval for the 52 million dollars is basically it was sold as a project going uh south to north uh because that was another like i say a close vote so that's how that vote got approved is because this wasn't just going to be a southeast lrt but if what today's stuff is happening uh with the momentum to hey just stop it into the downtown you're basically getting a southeast lrt and not a north system unless This enhanced BRT system can bring a lot of people from the north in smoothly.
1: Any other uh, notable items on the agenda this week uh, for City Council, Aurelio?
2: It's a pretty quiet week for City Council. They have uh, planning and urban development later on the week. Uh, That's looking at, uh, they had a stakeholder panel taking a look at how to uh, talk with council and committees in this online era and they talked to some people about some of the mechanisms that work and some of the things that don't really work. And so they're just getting an updated report on what they heard.
0: Well, it'll be an interesting one for sure. The uh, Green Line fireworks should be enough for all of us. Uh, Thank you for joining us with an update. Appreciate it, Aurelio.
2: You're welcome.
0: Have fun at City Hall today. Uh, uh, No doubt there'll be lots of discussions going on. 609 now. One issue that COVID-19 has brought into the spotlight is the issues with long-term care homes. It's been concerning. It took a a global pandemic to call attention to the tragic issues that have been harming our seniors for so long now. We're joined by the executive producer of Healthing.ca, Lisa Machado, to hear her thoughts on the issue. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for joining us. Hey Sue, thanks a lot for having me, appreciate it. So, I mean, it's been awful to, you know, we, we've, we've heard the numbers, the stats of, of seniors dying right across the country through this pandemic, and then seeing the, the report from the Canadian military after they were helping out in some of the homes in Ontario and now in Quebec as well. Why? Why did it take so long for people to finally get the message that things are not right in these uh, long-term care homes?
3: It's a great question. Uh, And I actually think it's not so much why did it take so long for people to get the message. I I think we had the message. I think that it took a global pandemic and huge numbers of deaths um, to to make us realize that we have a problem. I mean, we know that there have been studies done over the last five years that highlighted blatant neglect and abuse um, and unnecessary deaths in these homes. And for some reason, it was easy for everybody to, uh, for our government to gloss over those issues. And now with covid in the limelight i mean they, they just
1: don't have a choice now lisa you have a personal story attached to a long-term care center a facility and uh you know my father was in uh, one of these facilities as well here in alberta could it be that we think that you know maybe our case is isolated and um you know our parent or our family member isn't getting the right amount of attention and we shouldn't step forward
3: hmm. That's, that's actually a really great point, because I think when you're in it, as you would know, um, since you've had this experience, but when you're in it, you kind of think, oh, well, maybe I don't know, maybe my standards are too high. Uh-huh. Maybe, you know, um, I'm too critical because it's, it's my own parent. But um, my father was in a home for uh, almost 10 years and it wasn't just him. Um, it was uh, it was many of the residents there, um, and the other thing is that you, you could argue that even if it's just one person who's not having his mouth wiped properly after he eats, or his clothes buttoned up properly, or even bathed properly. I mean, even one person, uh, that's that's an issue that's worth uh, bringing to the limelight. And our politicians have,
0: you know, said this: it's not acceptable. We're going to change things. But you know, mm-hmm. it, has it almost been
3: too little, too late now at this point? Yeah, you kind of feel like that, right? And you see a lot of stories of people uh, coming forward who's, uh, who've lost loved ones um, in these homes and who have lots of stories of complaints and, you know, uh, issues that were that were gone no one paid attention to those issues. And, um, you know, I think, like you could always say it's too, it's too late, but these things are still happening right now, you know, and people today... You know, there will be residents in long-term care homes who are choking and who are dying and who are suffering um, neglect. And uh, and I think, uh, yeah, it's not too late. I think we should get started right away.
1: So, Lisa, on healthing.ca, uh, it chronicles mm-hmm. your story and uh, your uh, basically campaign to bring this to awareness. But where do we start? Because uh, to a certain extent, you can look at the dollars and how expensive it is to run these facilities. And uh, that maybe we don't have enough staff to begin with. Is it just a money thing?
3: So I think it's two things. I think there is a money thing. I think there. I mean, with everything, with almost all of our issues that happen on the margins of society, uh, mental health, um you know, the homeless, all of those issues tend to fall to the side, and there's always this, uh, you know, explanation that we don't have enough money. um I would argue, first of all, that when you're talking about people and people's lives, yes. I think that that's, you know, I would, I would, I would love to say, hey, you know, who cares? Let's uh, let's spend the money that we need to to maintain human dignity across all of these areas. You know, not just long term care homes, um, but I think you know there have been numerous studies uh, done in the last ten years or so, and and they pretty much uh, narrow it down to just a few. You know, more hours of care per resident, right? Um, add a few more uh, PSWs, for example. Don't um, let's let's pay them uh, full time wages as opposed to part time, and make these people have to work two and three jobs in a day. You know, nutrition and cleaning. I mean, how hard is it, you know, to uh, to to take a close look at what these people are eating? You know, I think that, uh, I think, sure, there's a funding argument, but I think that that is, uh, really pales in comparison to maintaining human dignity and just respecting um, the people that we have in these homes.
0: I wonder if that's it's going to change things. I wonder if people will now start to... You know more often have their seniors their their parents their grandparents live with them because it it sure seems we're the only people really the only one of the only countries where we just we Mm -hmm. send our 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 seniors into these old folks homes instead of keeping Mm -hmm. them in in our homes with us
3: absolutely but you know what The, the the other part of that is that we don't have the resources here um you know to help people take care of their people at home you know, with my, my own father, he had uh, dementia, and he was falling down, and he was getting lost. And there's no way that my mom could have cared for him. She, she would have loved to, you know, keep him at home. Um, but there's just there's just not that help out there. Um, and I think, you know, the, uh, a lot, when this whole thing started, you know, there were a few calls, oh, you should take your people out of the homes. It's horrible in there. You know, these are, these are like places where people go to die, pretty much. And I thought that that was very um, unfeeling, you know, because, you know, to, of course, we don't want any of our people to live like that but it's also to shift the responsibility you know to the caregiver i think that that's um, that's really tragic mm-hmm.
1: and when it comes to the caregivers we've heard a lot that uh, you know when you, when we talked about you know pumping up some of the uh, resources financially for these institutions that these caregivers have to work at several different facilities mm-hmm. just to make ends meet so maybe that could be one of the main areas we focus on is the wages for caregivers
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And that, you know, and some of those the stories of those people that work in those homes, like they're sending money back, right, for yep. families. They're or they're here, you know, just they're waiting for their residency, and they don't want to complain, right? No. Or they don't want to, you know, rock the boat. And so that's that's the other thing. I mean, we met a lot of my family, and I met a, a lot of great personal support Absolutely. workers and nurses, you know. And uh, but they just don't have a voice. Yep. Well, I mean, let's hope that this. Is the impetus to
0: to a big change coming, and that more money will be, will be given to you know make sure that the homes are safe and that you know the, the the our seniors have their dignity and and are treated the way that they should be treated, and this is just the first step towards that. Do you what do you what do you want to see happen next? What do you think should be the first thing that we see?
3: Um, I, you know, I actually would like to see everybody stop talking about it and let's start seeing some actual, you know, movement. Because um, I think that, that that actually contributes to a lot of fatigue in society, right? You know, we, we, something bad happens, everybody says, hey, let's fix it. The government says, yeah, we're going to fix it. And then...
0: Let's nothing. do a study about a study a and stu- study oh, the yes. study yeah. and... Yeah.
3: Absolutely. So I think that you know, like today, let's start right now. Let's get the inspections happening, right? Let's get more PSWs in those homes. I mean, like let's start to see some change. I mean, everyone's talking now, but there's nothing happening, right?
1: Well, you know what? Uh, Nobody has the exact solution now, but the conversation, the ball is rolling, and of course, the direction Mm -hmm. toward change. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Lisa.
3: Thank you. I appreciate it.
1: That is Lisa Machado, executive producer of healthing.ca, the website. 618 on the morning news. Grocery store employees are among the heroes of the pandemic, but despite everyone's best efforts, the sheer number of people in and out of grocery stores has meant many across the country have faced COVID-19 outbreaks. Is it still safe to shop there? We're joined by public health specialist and family physician, Monica Dot. Good morning, Monica. Good morning. Should we be afraid Uh, popping into the local, local grocery store to pick up our supplies.
4: You know, I think on the whole, we still just need to remember the general measures that we we should be taking. And those are things like, you know, if you only send one person to the store, do that. When you're in the store, washing your hands, keeping your distance. And, you know, looking around to see if the grocery store you go to does take a lot of the precautions that that they they should be taking. There's lots of guidance out there for for retail stores that they should be following. So I would say that, you know, like any interaction that we're taking now, we need to weigh the, the risks and benefits. And if there's ways that you can decrease your risk yourself, do that. And also watch to see if your, your stores are taking the measures they should be.
0: When there is you know, someone who tests positive, for example, at a grocery store, is that sort of when you know the public health authorities really glom onto it and there's a super cleaning done so it might be then one of the safest places to shop after that? Yeah, so I'm speaking from kind of out on the East Coast, but in general,
4: anytime there's a positive case, public health is made aware, you know, very quickly, and they will start their investigation. So they will find who the person is that's positive, talk to them, and figure out exactly who else may have been at risk. So it really depends on the situation. So if it's someone who had very little interaction with others versus someone who may have had more interactions with others, that's going to impact the next steps about you know who else in the store needs to get tested. What kind of actions the store needs to take I think for the most part stores have tended to say we're just going to do a a really deep cleaning of of the store in general and and that's reasonable to do too but the public health investigation will really show who needs to be informed who needs to be tested does any broader messaging need to go out to the community and it's not that often that that needs to happen it's often kind of close contacts of the the employee that are the ones that uh, there's the most focus on.
1: I think we have to give a tip of the hat to these grocery stores and the employees because, yes, we've had outbreaks here and there, but it seems more uh, infrequently than frequently. Um, So if they're following the protocols, I think that is a pretty good indication that they do work if you follow the protocols, if you've been on the front lines for weeks.
4: Yeah, and absolutely, we know that people who are kind of our essential workers, front lines, are often people who, who as much as we might call them heroes, they are also you know sometimes in in kind of jobs that they they need to keep in order to to support their family and and may not always have a lot of um, choice in terms of wanting to work or working at home. So so yes, definitely we need to to think. Um, you know, appreciate their work and I, I would say that most stores, if not all, are, you know, they want to keep their employees safe, they want to keep their customers safe. They don't want to be somewhere that, that people think badly of. So they are trying to follow all the, you know, environmental measures, whether it's plexiglass or all mm-hmm. the markings on the, the floor or the hand washing stations or, you know, wiping down carts, you know, you'll see at every store you go into that people are really trying to, to take those measures. And if there is a case there there does need to be extra um, work that needs to happen and and also remembering that people are involved in their communities they have family members it's you know it's hard to say sometimes where they might have acquired the, the infection so also keeping that in mind that we all also interact with with others
0: and monica be our own advocates right i mean take your own wipes take your own hand sanny in your pocket or your purse if if you need to to make sure that you have it correct
4: yeah, absolutely. You know, there's the recommendations around, you know, face coverings when you think you might have to be closer than 2 meters to someone, definitely keeping the hand sanitizer, you know, before you go in, after you you leave and and using all the precautions that are that are in the store, trying to online order if you you can. There's lots of things that we can be doing to protect ourselves and to to imprec- protect the the employees also in the store.
1: Monica, thank you for spending time with us this morning.
4: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: That is Monica Dutt, family physician and public health specialist. 818 on the morning news. Calgary's Empathy Week gets underway today and continues straight through Sunday, featuring diverse workshops and discussions online. Calgary is the first city in the world to host an Empathy Week, and joining us with more details is Salima stanley Bonji, creator of Empathy Week. Good morning, Salima.
5: Oh, hi. How are you doing?
1: Uh, Good, thank you for taking the time this morning. Uh, Why is empathy important and and what do you think people will get out of this week?
5: Well, empathy is really about, you know, trying to step into someone else's shoes and imagine what something might be like for them. And um, it's so critical uh, for our relationships and our connections with each other, um, for us to feel supported, especially in times when uh, we may be undergoing certain kinds of challenges or stress, like right now Mm -hmm. with the pandemic. So I think that this week is really about promoting empathy, recognizing how important it is, um, learning a little bit about empathy because it is a skill, it is something that we actually can get better at, and, um, and also really just kind of um, honoring uh, the importance of human connection and our relationships, which are actually you know two of the top determinants of our longevity. So, um, yeah,
0: so we're really excited about the week ahead, actually. And you're right, the timing couldn't be better. So how do we learn empathy? Well, I think, you know, like
5: any skill, one of the best ways is through practice. And fortunately, because we're interacting uh, with people all the time, even if it is at the moment uh, mostly through, you know, phone and video chat and stuff like that, um, you know, we have the opportunity to practice all the time. And I think sometimes... The more intimate relationships that we have, sometimes with close friends and family, uh, sometimes those are actually the best places to practice empathy because they're often the places where, um, you know, we tend to get triggered and uh, and sometimes, um, you know, that can uh, prevent us um, from being able to step outside of ourselves and imagine what something is like for someone else.
1: Let's talk about Empathy Week and the workshops and discussions online that people can take part in. Uh, what what sorts of things are gonna be happening? So
5: the week starts today and runs through next Sunday. And in order to respect social distancing, we're running the whole festival online this year. So uh, everything's being offered either through Instagram Live via our Humanology account, which is at spreadempathyyyc, or via Zoom. And so we're kicking off today, uh, opening up Empathy Week. Uh, I'll be chatting to an Indigenous woman, Nikita Kapie Suat, about the true meaning of powwow, which is a word that we often misuse. And later in the week, Nikita is actually going to be offering a fitness workshop, uh, a fitness class called Powwow Fit, which is uh, derived from traditional Indigenous dance. Um, We've got a chat coming up with local activist Pam Rocker about conversion therapy, which has been in the news a lot lately, an all abilities dance workshop with Momo Movement, uh, do-it-yourself puppetry workshop for kids uh, ages six and up. And I'm really looking forward to a cooking demonstration uh, next weekend uh, with local plant-based chef Lex Ambrose, uh, who um, is going to be demonstrating some, uh, making some vegan Uh, gluten-free pancakes while talking about uh, their journey uh, both as a culinary artist as well as uh, someone who identifies as being non-binary so there's lots of different stuff for all ages and interests and uh, we do have uh, the full program listing up online at our website humanology.com
0: and registration through Eventbrite and what's the cost for all of this Salima?
5: Yeah, I'm glad you asked. So uh, all of the events are either free or by donation, uh, optional donation, and uh, all of the Zoom events do require pre-registration. All of the Instagram live events, you can just hop right on Instagram and tune in.
1: Good stuff. Looking forward to it. Again, kicking off today right through Sunday. We appreciate your time, Salima. Thank you so much. That is Salima Stanley-Bonji, and of course you can find more at humanology.com. 749 on the morning news. We are now joined by global Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini with the latest on the protests happening south of the border. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Reggie, another night of protests in Washington. Walk us through what happened last night.
6: Well, this was a protest that started yesterday during the afternoon hours uh, at one of the historically black colleges, Howard University. There were hundreds of people that were involved in this, uh, and it slowly made its way towards the White House. It was a very peaceful and calm protest uh, that eventually started to change as the sun went down, as different factions of different organizations started to join in with this group. And by the end of the night, what we ended up seeing was a chaotic situation with buildings and structures lit on fire uh, and uh, uh, retaliation put back by the police. Uh, in terms of tear gas and pepper spray.
0: Reggie, Washington, D.C. has activated its entire National Guard to try and keep the peace. Does it look like that might work?
6: Well, I mean, there's an effort that that could work. It's something that's taken place across dozens of states around the U.S. right now, mobilizing just another additional layer to be able to assist uh, local police enforcement where, uh, you know, feelings and emotions are already strained with local communities. And, you know, we'll have to see tonight what what the National Guard actually does. The mayor mobilized them later today. They do report to the president, uh, but they are just going to be an additional way to try and keep the calm and potentially quell some of that violence. Where
1: is President Trump in all of this? We've heard from him on Twitter, his uh, favorite tool, it seems to be the case, but what is his next step?
6: Well, the president uh, has been in the White House for days. We've learned now that the president on Friday night was actually whisked into a bunker as the protests approached the front door of the White House. Uh, he is There is no intentions for the president to actually come out and address the uh, nation in any kind of address from the Oval Office. as press secretary on Fox News today said, uh, you know, the president speaking isn't going to do anything to stop Antifa, which is what he believes is uh, kind of behind all of these protests. Uh, so they intend to have him stay quiet, noting that there is no kind of cohesive plan uh, for what he would be able to say to uh, the country so for now it's going to be the president using his fingers and he's already sent off a number of very politicized tweets this morning
0: fueling the fire no doubt in some way but he's also declaring or planning to declare antifa as a domestic terrorist organization what what is antifa and what would it actually accomplish by doing that
6: well, it would be very difficult for that to actually happen. Antifa, you know, it's an anti-fascist group of people who are trying to fight back against kind of government oppression. But Antifa is also not an organization. It's an ideology and it's a movement. Uh, and the, the U.S. doesn't have the mechanisms to be able to designate anything uh, on domestic soil a terrorist organization. It's only for foreign organizations. And it would also be a slippery slope for the president to try and lump anybody who's in protesting against the government as a terrorist. It would be uh, something that would be incredibly dangerous. Dangerous for this administration uh, and it's something that you know a lot of uh, kind of scholars are saying this has more bark than it does bite
1: Reggie we can't take coronavirus out of the equation in these protests obviously when you talk protests the definition would be gatherings of large people we're seeing people shoulder to shoulder there must be uh, a great concern that this is only going to you know inflame the coronavirus uh, crisis in the u.s.
6: Yeah, look, uh, there have been health experts that have said over the last couple of days that there will be catastrophic setbacks to the amount of work that this social distancing did over the last four months to curb coronavirus in this country. Uh, You know, here in D.C., with the initial protests on Friday and Saturday, the mayor said anybody who was involved in these now needs to put themselves into a 14-day quarantine or go and get a coronavirus test. Uh, And this is what we're hearing around the country, you know, especially when you're seeing things like pepper spray and tear uh, tear gas uh, dispersed amongst the crowds, even if you're wearing a mask you're now coughing uh, because you can't breathe and getting that on somebody else and there is just an incredibly increased risk now that we are going to see numbers start to skyrocket again across this country over the next couple of weeks.
0: Thank you for joining us with an update Reggie appreciate your time. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini Global's Washington correspondent.
1: 849 on the morning news. Uh, Very excited as it rolls along. Community champion brought to you by Calgary Co-op. Every community has a champion that has been making things better during the pandemic. And we like to shine the spotlight with also a chance to win. Mm -hmm. All eyes on a champion that will be awarded from Calgary Co-op. Now we have one of our nominators on the line to tell us about who she has nominated and why. We like to say good morning to Naomi Lindstein. Good morning, Naomi Oh, good morning. How are you? Good. Your community champion, you've uh, indicated, is your niece, Rebecca. Tell us about your niece and why you think she should be a nominee for a community champion.
7: Okay, for sure. I'll tell you why. She's an amazing young woman, and that's what impresses me the most. She's a nursing student who actually had a job at the Y and, was uh, of course, uh, couldn't perform that job because of the COVID virus. So then uh, she wanted to get more experience because she is in the nursing program. So she has applied and she is working at a long-term care home. And I'm really impressed with that. As a nursing student, she's getting more experience. And she said that she makes the day for those people at the long-term care and, um, you know, I'm just really happy that she's able to work with these people. They're quarantined. They, they can't visit with their family. And she said that she's the only bright light that comes into their day. And when you see young people going into an, a long-term care facility to work, it, it really it, it makes your heart sing because you think this is a young person, you know, that's working really hard and wants to make life better, especially for her, the seniors that we have.
0: You know, Naomi, I think you're allowed to be biased in this case because uh, your niece, Rebecca Sweeney, sounds like a wonderful person. And did the seniors that she's helping to to look after, they must love her in response to, to just, you know, the warmth that she obviously exudes.
7: Oh, they absolutely do. Like she said that uh, as soon as they see her come, they smile. And uh, she said that she's almost like family to them. And I, I noticed Rebecca with her own two grandmothers, she, she takes them shopping, she takes them for medical appointments, she does all these things. And, but the most important thing is she actually sits down and sits and, and visits with them, talks with them. And I think she takes a little bit of her time out of her work day there at the uh, long-care long care home and talks
1: to these people. And she's going to continue her education in nursing uh, after the pandemic?
7: Yes, she is. She's just finished third year, so she's going to be starting fourth year at, in Lethbridge.
0: Fantastic. Well, you thank her for doing what she's doing for our seniors, but overall as a nurse and being on those front lines, it's, you know, most of us would not want that job. And there are so many like Rebecca who are are seeking it out to try and make a difference. So thank you for nominating her, Naomi.
7: Oh, no problem. Like I said, we when we have young people and we see the young people doing that, it, uh, it's great for our society.
0: Absolutely. That's Naomi Lindstein. She is nominating her niece, Rebecca Sweeney, as a community champion. And one lucky champion, once we're through these four weeks of telling you all about these great people, uh, one lucky champion is going to get $350 to Calgary Co-op. We'll deliver it to their door via our 770 CHQR community cruiser powered by Bow West Appliance. But, but I think they're all winners
1: in my book. They're all winners and that we, only one person or group will get the final prize, but we want to give them credit, and that's the best that we can do during these times, minus the one winner, and you don't have a chance to win. And you don't have a chance for your uh, nominee to win unless you go online at 770chqr.ca and look for the Contests tab. Click on it and go to Community Champions. Tell us the story.